Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers' Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! It's merely a podcast. The world is podcast now. I've even got my kids in a podcast. Is that true? Mm-hmm. What do they listen? How old are your kids? Uh, almost six. And the almost three-year-old just listens to whatever her sister listens right. to. But they're really into wow in the world. What is that? It's uh, uh, Guy Raz, you know, who does the TED Talk stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and it's an NPR podcast. It's for an kids. NPR podcast for kids. There's one that's called Storytime, which I don't know why they're into, which is like, hello, we're going to do a story now. Not they now. had the Daily for Kids, which I actually didn't listen to. Oh, really? They're like talking about sure ISIS for kids. There's one that I just Oh, heard you know what it was about? It was about girls joining the Boy Scouts. Oh, okay. So that's okay. probably that's that's acceptable. That's positive. And then there's a new one that I just found called Story Pirates. Yes. Which I they which they take stories written by kids and like perform them. Yeah. Or oh, turn them into cool. songs and stuff. Really so we're listening to that today. Yeah. Um, it's nice because you feel like love them too. Well, it's nice, because it's not put on the television. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like a part of their brain is still getting to imagine stuff. Definitely talk about how bad television is right now. <laughs> it's that would be. good for you. I'm talking about television. I'm not talking about streaming. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> well, look, that's a good place to start. Um, first of all, congratulations on Runaways to both of you. Thank uh, you. And on Thank Dynasty. You. Thank you. Which, that's that's out, right? Like, there's a bunch out. of episodes going on. Yes. We got the for back nine order. Yeah. That's great. Congrats. Yeah. Um, and we had Sally on the podcast um, maybe a month ago. Oh, whoa, awesome. whoa. We're, Sal- we're coming after <laughs> Sally. All right, well. Listen, you guys have been on my list. I was just telling these, these just guys. You have been Sally. on my list since the beginning. Oh. I, was, I loved the OC. Oh. Uh, we'll get into it. Did you it. get out all of our Arcana here? That oh, I didn't even look around. Chris McCook in the car in oh, Atomic County. Atomic <laughs> County. Very cute. Um, People can't see these things that we're talking no, about. No, I'll cut all this out. <laughs> the podcast will start here, actually. Uh, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, thank you guys for being here, seriously. Or thank you for having me. Um, let's talk about thank Runaways. You. Yes. Um, in watching these first episodes, I am getting this amazing OC vibe. <laughs> like, this is the OC with superpowers, which I think is high praise. <laughs> Um, tell me about, like, I, I listened to you guys on, uh, on the IndieWire podcast. Uh-huh. You, you want to bring some fresh material to I this want some new yeah. material. <laughs> and I will tell people to go listen to that, because it was yeah. actually a really good conversation about just how you got involved and how, Josh, you were aware of the book for mm-hmm. so long, and you guys were both fans. Um, but what I'm curious about is the actual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story that you guys told in that podcast was about writing the pilot on spec. And how that changed when it came to Hulu. And I want to sort of dig in sure, on that sure. for a minute. So let's just give a little background information about how you came to write that pilot on spec in the first place. Sure. Yeah. So this was a book that I had loved for a long time since it was first published. Um, and we had wanted to get in business with Marvel uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, they were very busy creating their Marvel universe. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going too far back here with no, the story. Good. Um and when we heard that Runaways was moving from, had, was no longer going to be in feature development and there was a shot at doing a television, we immediately set a meeting with Marvel, started talking about it, and that's when I said to Stephanie, 
please read this because obviously we're partners. <laughs> this only works if you love this. Sure. Two, and she read it and she did love it. And you can talk about why if you'd like to. Sure. No, I mean I'm not naturally a comic book person, so I didn't know about it. I kind of remember Josh liking it, but I never mm-hmm. read it myself. And um, feeling like I don't know what this is, but Josh likes it, so I'll give it a chance. And um, she uses that just tone whenever I <laughs> diving in and falling in love, and just being like, "This is so funny," and there's so much humor, and humor and funny is the same thing. So much That's heart. That's how funny it was. There's so, there's <laughs> yeah. so much heart, heart and humor. Yeah, and like these crazy cliffhangers at the end of every issue, and I loved the female characters and that there was diversity, and it was literally the Los Angeles that we live in. Like mm-hmm. I lived at Rodney and Russell, and the. Seven uh, Eleven they go to is the one on Vermont, and I was just like, that is where I buy all the food that keeps me alive. Like, oh no, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. no, no, I got to get Also, I need you to improve your diet. Stephanie yeah. <laughs> subsists on Slim Jims. Yeah, no, it was cat food for my cat and uh, half and half for my coffee. Uh, <laughs> you you yeah. were a real writer, yeah, exactly, right from the beginning. Um, and I think part of what yeah. we responded to, I mean. You know, you say you get these OC vibes from the from the show, and obviously those are our vibes. <laughs> that's, what that, that's our vibe. But um, but what I responded to when I first read the book, and it came out the same year, the first year of the OC, so nobody was kind of mm-hmm. being inspired by you know these two things. Kind of both came independently of each other, but definitely felt like a kindred spirit with Brian's mm-hmm. writing and his references and his tone. So I think there was a, a natural already sort of sensibility overlap. Um, when you guys let me look yeah. interrupt for a second and sort of uh, look at this moment of uh, looking at the material, mm-hmm. knowing that you wanted to make a show based on it, and like, does a pilot start to form in your head? Do you start to, in reading these comics with the cliffhangers, do you start to think, like, here's what the series can be, and how does that start to evolve through conversations with each other? Well, the first conversation that we had in terms of, like, thinking about it as a television show versus a movie or a limited series, because the book moves super fast, you know, and by, like, issue three, these kids are on the run, and the parents are trying to kill them, and, like, all the cards are on the table. And part of that, which we later found out from talking to Brian K. Vaughn about it, who was... Uh, we were lucky enough to have join us in the writer's room for mm-hmm. the first month, which I'm happy to talk about, was that they thought they were going to get canceled every right. issue. And so they just blew through a lot of story, something that we've also been accused of <laughs> uh, in the past. And um, I think we did like three seasons of story in the first year of the OC. We also did 27 episodes in our defense. Right. Um, so the first question was... Which is like the entire run of Downton Abbey. That's, don't get Stephanie started on that. I think it's twice as much. Yeah. Yeah, that's Stephanie's... Uh, that's a whole separate podcast. Uh, I am going to get you started. Please remind me to get you started on that. All right. um, she doesn't need a lot of provoking for this issue. I yeah. do have questions about like that kind of structure, but please... Sure, no. So, so anyways, the biggest question we had was, the show is called The Runaways. We The first 18 issues, the first volume, mm-hmm. is really the thing that people remember. Mm-hmm. So iconically. And that's what you fell in love and with. That's what I fell in love with. And that's mm-hmm. really where the, that's kids versus parents. So how do you open up that first 18 issues and live inside of it? Can you do the runaways if they don't run away? Right, right away. away. Right away. Right. If they don't run away, out of the gate. Um, because the delicious tension of, you know, sitting across the breakfast table from your parents who you think maybe sacrificing teenagers in a secret basement is really fun Absolutely. and packed with you know opportunity. And once they run, and the parents know what the kids know, you know you can't do that again. Once that happens, there's no putting what is it the toothpaste back in the in the tube into the stable. Yes, into the stable. Thank you. <laughs> um, so so that was the first conversations that we had was mm-hmm. how do we kind of make this sustainable mm-hmm. as a series? Um, obviously, we want to deliver those cliffhangers. We want the story to move. Um, funny enough, though, then we wrote this pilot thinking, like, okay, we're really going to slow this down. down. And, but we did our – so when we, when we got Marvel to, uh, to agree to let us play in the Runaways sandbox, we went off and wrote uh, a pilot on spec and a Bible to kind of prove mm-hmm. how much we, we love this thing. And our first instinct was to follow the comic more closely in the sense that within page – you know, within the end of the first act – They've witnessed the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily run at the end of the pipe, but they learn a lot more information, and things move much more quickly. And when the show ended up at Hulu, um, they gave us this note, which you never, ever hear from a network, which is, can you take the end of your teaser and make that the end of the pilot? 
usually it's the opposite. Usually it's like, mm-hmm. can, they take, can you take the end of like, the, not only the end of the episode, can you take the end of episode two and make that the end of season one? Or the end of season one. Yeah. And, and you know, networks are constantly looking to pull yeah. the story up and have more incident happen Absolutely. to pilots. And this was a permission to um, just think about characters and who were these kids before they all convened at this, uh, at this house. So in getting this opportunity to sort of live with the characters and live in the drama of the situation, mm-hmm. right, which is what you guys were, were interested in drawing out anyway, um, how does that change things structurally? I mean, you have this Bible, and you have a plan for what the first season is going to be, presumably, in seasons thereafter. So what starts to happen? What starts to shift in that first season, and how do you sort of adjust for it? Like what starts to shift after we started yeah. working on the series? After you know it's Hulu and this is the pace of things. Um, well, I think, I mean, some of it was just like you recontextualize ideas that you already have. Like, for example, in the original pilot that we wrote, um, the, the kids did go to a party where Chase and Carolina crossed, but in our first version that happened later in the story, mm. once the kids had already seen the sacrifice and, oh, right. and the Alex <laughs> and Gert and the dinosaur, um, and the dinosaur all end up at uh, the party. Oh, yeah. um, and they have to pull Carolina and Chase away so that because they've discovered some information that they need to act on. So it was like, all right, well, we know we want to do a house party, you know, let's, so that happens. That's your brand. That's brand yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, starting with mansions. Basically, yeah. I put something <laughs> in the Runaways comic book. She's like, there's mansions, I'm in. Yeah. 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 Uh, so so yes. it's not so much about... But some of the bigger it's ideas, like well. it's incident plus character plus sort of this amorphous drama idea. Yeah, and and again, you you still have this central idea and this central sort of narrative drive to the story. Um, but one of the bigger things that came about was once we had the room to dig into character was what if these guys used to be friends? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the comic, they don't really like each other. They go to different schools. They have to meet once a year. You know, when their parents meet right. at this thing. Uh, at this charity function and they're dragged there part of it was there's a reality to the fact that they're teenagers mm-hmm. if they don't want to go to their parents charity function <laughs> they don't have to go and why do the parents want them there like if you were like <laughs> I don't no want to go and they're like no you must come because we're going to be doing something very dangerous in the basement <laughs> right. that we absolutely don't want you to witness so definitely you have to come like, I hope Brian doesn't <laughs> so, we, we have had, a lot of notes we Brian. had all these conversations <laughs> in front him. of him yeah, and we sure. all agreed that there's a reality to a comic book that's sure. different when it's the live action adaptation and you know you kind of have to like explain things to their actors and why they're making these choices and yeah so once we kind of locked into this idea of they they were friends a tragedy befell the group that plus high school drove them apart then the moment where they all actually do come together is kind of the hero moment of the show and it doesn't involve any powers and i think for us that was the other thing that always interests us about the book and we knew just sort of interested as writers and what we were going to be leaning into was going to be less about superpowers. And we actually didn't really think of it as a superhero show. We thought of it as a family drama or coming of age drama that happened to have a dinosaur and some fistigons, but that was never, you know, the, the, the central drive for us. Um, and that just opened up a lot of possibilities and, and stories mm-hmm. and um, kind of digging into that, that history of those characters and mysteries mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the well, backstory. Yeah, and that's the thing I'm curious about too. In you know having these conversations and putting together the Bible, like as someone adapting something, at a certain point you have to put aside what exists. Sure. But you also want to. You're serving a lot of masters, right? right. You're serving the Marvel and Hulu and the fans and the creators, but also you guys have to make a TV show at the end of the day. Right. So what were those conversations like, and you know how did you sift through what was important what is a trope of runaways versus what can we sort of do away with well we were fans you know so that so we kind of if we were satisfying ourselves we were hopefully also pleasing the fans and our writers room was made of people who were fans and it was also important to us that brian be happy you know he was entrusting us with this which was his baby and it was a beloved book and um and marvel takes that stuff very seriously too and marvel tv are also fans. You know, yeah. you, when you don't sit with them and they're, they're not like your traditional studio executives. They are deeply invested and passionate about the material yeah. and protective of it, but they also, the way they describe it is, we're giving you an eight-lane high, you know, highway. Yeah. You can careen across all these eight lanes with as much room as you want, but we're the guardrails on either, mm-hmm. on either side. 
Um, so there was a lot of sensibilities or a lot of people were trying to please that were aligned. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, it was really about how do we honor the spirit of the book and honor the spirit of the characters, but um, be able to tell a story that can sustain for television. Can we talk about no magic? Sure. Um, Marvel also has a policy, Marvel, Marvel Television, yeah, right. that um, there's no magic allowed. Mm-hmm. So you can do things that are heightened to our world, but they have to be explainable through science. Even if it's science from the future that we don't totally understand, it's still got to be something that you could kind of sit down and explain through some fundamental principles. So that actually required a lot of translation and adaptation, which was very in sync fortunately with what Hulu wanted because they wanted something that felt very grounded and relatable and that people who weren't necessarily genre fans could watch the show and kind of relate to what was going on and understand what was happening. Um, so that worked out well, but it did. we did have to do a lot of invention and most of those things that we came up with in the Bible did stick. Mm-hmm. You know, the Yorkses did not bring the dinosaur, didn't bring old lace back Last. from the future. <laughs> Um, but uh, she's was bioengineered in a lab. Something right. um, like the Church of Gaborum, yeah. you know, which is like, how do we take this giant science fiction part of the story, which yeah. is really heightened and aliens and all this stuff, and put that into our world in a way that makes sense? Well, what if there was a religion who, if you looked at it from the outside, it sure does sound like science fiction. We won't say what religion <laughs> we were inspired by. It was Judaism. But, um, sure. You know, obviously. But... Uh, so there, that kind of stuff all, all, all held. And the staff is still connected to blood magic in that it takes blood to mm-hmm. start working, but it's DNA-based right. and engineered in a lab. And, and a lot of that magic. stuff, it, yeah, and it's interesting, I mean, like, a lot of that stuff is, again, the real hardcore. Comic book fans are either going to be on board with that or not, mm-hmm. but I feel like often as storytellers, like, that's kind of hand-wavy stuff anyway. Like, does sure. it really matter? And did, like, how deep into this did you guys have to go? We went pretty we went deep. deep. I mean, we have a, we, somewhere there's a very thick document that lays out all the precepts of the Church of Gaborum oh and, like, how the technology works. and Because you want to know for yourself. But again, you know. One of our writers was, like, a trained scientist. And yeah. we just really, like, really tapped her brain to, like, her parents were, like. Heart, like the Yorks, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and. As Stephanie was saying, like the emotional groundedness was really what was the most important thing, and that was also what was important to Hulu too. Which is like these kids witness their parents do something terrible. Your first instinct ne- isn't necessarily to run. Um, and again, what they witness in, in the comics is a little more straightforward of a stabbing, and it's clear that they murdered someone. In ours, it's a little more high tech and weird, and what is happening exactly. Um, but for some kids, the 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 real the realization that their parents are evil actually is the most, you know, that's like the, they're willing to buy that. That actually Absolutely. makes the most sense to them. But other kids are going to have a completely different reaction to that and not want to believe that their parents are evil. So again, being able to mine that reality as well and, and that every kid is going to react to this differently and need more proof. All of it, everything we're talking about was all about just making the show feel as real and as grounded as, as possible. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, which to go back to the original thing about what if they don't run away right away, it's like, well, yeah, like if we saw this, would you be like, you guys, let's just definitely leave our homes and right. like, no, you would, even if you were thought your parents were guilty, like I think you could get more information if you like stayed at home and yeah. like started investigating. And there's no secretly. proof and how do we, who would believe us. And well, it's yeah. complicated emotionally, which you yeah. really mind, yeah. which is... And throughout the season, those series. alliances will shift. So certain kids are like, all in on my parents are douches and I definitely think they're evil. And later in the season, those kids might find themselves having a relationship with their parents for the first time and the other kids have shifted. So that's something that we can mind. The other part of the, of the pitch and the thing that was always important to us from the get-go was fleshing out the parents mm-hmm. and making the pride as relevant to the story as the runaways, um, which is something that, you know, the comic just didn't have the space or, or the time for. Mm-hmm. Um, but we knew it would be key to, you know, uh, opening up the story. Yeah. I mean, now all of a sudden, though, you're juggling dozens <laughs> of characters. Yes. Um, yes. And look, you guys have written great multi-character soaps. This was a test. This is yeah. a, this this a lot of characters. Yeah. And it's part of why, you know, even if there isn't, 
huge action. They're not running away in every episode. Right. There's so much happening in it. Yes. So, so that has to be helpful. But I'm curious sure. about like doling out story to these characters. Well, it's funny because the first episode was always going to be driven through the kids' point of view, right? And we were Mm -hmm. always going to, we had like a little bit of a glimpse of the parents, but we cast all these really good actors Mm -hmm. for the parents. And so the first table read we did of our, of our pilot, they didn't have that much to do. And everybody was like, oh, that one line, I mean, you know, Dale and Stacy, like, how can we build out more? So we went back and rewrote just the one scene where they all are convening before they toast to each other in the pilot and go downstairs to do terrible things that we don't know about yet. And it was just one scene where everybody got a moment mm-hmm. and it made it made us and everybody just realize like, oh, this cast is really oh, exciting to write for. Yeah. So that the second episode, the idea was, well, let's retell this story now, the same story, but this time from the parents' point of view and help kind of just make you understand who these characters are and that they're not super villains and that they are flawed Humans that are their flawed sure. uh, uh, parents, um, <laughs> right. who who have made some compromises in their life and are having affairs and are having business right. issues, whatever that is, that that just helps it feel more. Well, they have complete lives. That's, they do, and that makes it more complicated as they start to kind of yeah. square off with their with their kids. Um, let's. You guys mentioned having a writer with science background or science brain in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys populate the writers' room? It was a good mix. I mean, we were very fortunate. We had. Uh, uh, this uh, one writer, particularly named Quentin Peoples, who stayed with us through the whole run, and he is Mister Comic Book Lore. Like, <laughs> just so we have references throughout the show of like the uh, Atlas Academy or huh. Timely Coffee, and that's all Quentin's, you know, knowledge and also his love of those stories. Because obviously, Steph and I come at it from the character stuff, and we love those moments between these mm-hmm. characters, and, um, and we like the other stuff too. Yeah, right? and I like creating the Easter eggs, like. But it's like, Quentin, give us a list of six things <laughs> yeah. that could, our coffee shop could be named after. And then when he was, like, timely, I was just, yes. And then we can have yeah. all these clocks everywhere and, like, <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. Get the production designer on that this right away. offhand Easter egg joke now affects set design. 100%, yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, so, so definitely having people that were more... Um, had more experience in genre storytelling mm-hmm. than potentially than, than we had. Um, what kind of stuff were you guys reading when you uh, were hiring, when you were putting together the room? What were we reading, meaning? For samples. It was mostly was it? specs because... Um, That's really what the market... Yeah. Is. You read much more specs now, especially when you're... when you're I don't Original know what, pilots. Original yeah. pilots. Oh, come on. On this podcast, people, the listeners, I would expect it. It's always someone's first podcast. Got it. <laughs> well, then welcome to you. Um, yeah, so, so it was a lot of that. It was people who had come off a mix of cable and, and network. Um, some writers we had worked with. Mm-hmm. Playwrights, you know, it was a good mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's I was curious about that. Is like the levels of background that they had. It sounds mm-hmm. like it was all over. It was a wide story. ranging, and you know, we wanted a diverse room that sort of reflected the, the diversity of the cast, and um, and it was a great room. It was the most polite room we've ever been in. <laughs> Is that right? How's that? Was really nice. Uh, well, another writer who was on the show was fantastic, named Kalinda Vasquez, who came off of Once Upon a Time. Just as another example of, mm-hmm. of um, somebody's credits that fit the show. Just was so polite. Just anytime she would pitch, she would always say, yes, and. And, you know, we're used to room with people like, that's stupid. You know, what are you talking about? So well, that was that, nice I'd, like, I'd actually love to hear about how the rooms you guys have run and been in have evolved, right? I mean, OC was, you were, you were new to television, mm-hmm. uh, and you were new to a room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious to hear, like, I've had a bunch of OC writers on the show, and we've talked a little bit about it, but from your perspective... Oh, God, what did they say? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was a while ago. Okay. Um, but from your perspectives, like, it must have been an enormous learning curve, first of all, writing oh, in yeah. a group. Yeah, the learning curve was was vast, and and uh, you know we were, I was very fortunate that because when we first started on the show, Stephanie still had another job, right. which is that she was partners with the filmmaker McGee and running this giant company that was doing features and television. So um, uh, we we brought in uh, this man named Bobby Lorenis, who was an experienced showrunner mm-hmm. and just an, a really great mentor, and who really. Because show writing is not just about the room and writing, but it's also about, well, how is what you're writing actually producible, and how can you, you know, uh, there's an array of things that go that go into it. Um, and obviously, as time went on, people entrusted us to be able to, to do that without super, right. without adult supervision, <laughs> because we can be adults. Um, well, you are. You're, you're suddenly the CEO of a corporation. Right. Right. Um, so... What were the what were the challenges for you? The challenge for me is I, I quite frankly have a hard time being in a room. <laughs> really? Yes, I, I, although on this show I enjoyed it 
more than I have. Part of it was so polite. Everyone was so polite. We're only doing 10 episodes. Mm -hmm. So that's just a different barrel to look down. Um, But traditionally, I am not somebody who had spent a lot of time in the room, um, sometimes because your job requires you Mm -hmm. to be elsewhere. But also because you didn't come up as a staff writer who then got to become an executive right. story editor you know like you used to you're used to working by yourself right or, or with you training or with me <laughs> um yeah, yeah so that feature writers who come in often have an adjustment period yeah so i had a weird thing where i sort of started you know kind of like uh, the end of shoots and ladders mm-hmm. the board game and then had to learn all the ladders <laughs> and shoots sure. along the way so i feel like um yeah, had to kind of learn that skill set retroactively. Yeah, yeah, and I had a period when I left Wonderland and came to the OC full-time after season two where I just really, my agent literally said to me, like, you need to professionalize yourself. Like, you can't just kind of be like, I'm going to write an episode of this, and then I'm going to go do that. It's like, right. you have to sit in that room every single day and break 25 episodes. And you're like, why? Josh doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps making excuses to go upstairs to post. I'm sure I said that, and I'm sure my agent said, you're not Josh, and get your ass in that room, because if you ever need to get another job, uh, you have to be able to show that you have this skill. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So really, I mean, that's a good agent, the thinking long-term for you, but making you do the work. Yeah. Um, I have two questions. So you really were avoiding being in the room in that those uh, early days. I mean... Uh, sure. I mean, again, I didn't really understand what Stephanie was saying. I really didn't sure. understand what the room was. And, it, and in that first year of the show, mm-hmm. we were doing so many episodes, and there was just a lot of writing that needed to be done, and it was a new staff, and you, there's only a couple people who necessarily could write the show. So a lot of the time, I couldn't be in the room because scripts had, to be, scripts. scripts had to be sure. written, and it was just churning uh, at such a fast pace. Um Although the moment where Bob said he thought I'd finally become a showrunner <laughs> was he found me sitting in a stairwell uh, with like my hood up on my hoodie <laughs> because there was some issue in the room I couldn't I didn't want to go in there and I couldn't go to set because an actor was mad at me about a rewrite oh and I couldn't go to editing because I was there was a director who I was we had squabbled with and so I, and I'm very uh, conflict avoidance anyway <laughs> so I just was like I can't go anywhere I just sat sadly in a stairwell with my hood up and Bob found me and he opened. <laughs> The door, he saw me sitting there and he just started laughing and he goes, Now you're a showrunner. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty great. Uh, did the room ever get more comfortable for you? Uh, it has. And, you know, on the, the Chuck Writer's room mm-hmm. was one where I had some friends who were in the room and it was a really good room of upper level people. So that felt like hanging out. And it felt, you know, it, it's. I, I start to react when it feels like, oh my God, there's so much pressure and how do we break these stories? And like when it starts to feel like a job. Sure. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm yeah. not yet professionalized myself. <laughs> All right, well, I want to pick yeah. that up in a minute. But Stephanie, I want to go back to this uh, time of transition. Because I think it's really interesting, especially for a lot of listeners who are not professional writers right mm-hmm. now and maybe have a foot in the business or even, you know, are just close by. But going from executive to full-time writer, like this was a conscious decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember you talking about sort of like you had written stuff before, you had written specs, but then you got it fell into this executive position and by all accounts are very good at it. Um, she can do it all. <laughs> this is what I understand. Um, I'm curious to hear about how the stuff that came before writing TV helped you write TV. Sure. Writing scenes? Yeah. <laughs> Is that well, right? I mean, I, I wrote as a kid. I wrote mm. in college, you know, in a semi-serious way in that people in college do of like I was an English major who took like advanced seminar and creative writing and wrote a short story collection for mm. like a senior independent study. Um, which then, uh, when my professor, who was nominated for a Nobel Prize, uh, <laughs> submitted to his publishers, and they gave the note, which as an adult, I can hear and go like, wow, that was a really good note, that the linked st- short story collection is a very difficult form. You might want to consider writing, you know, we, we like where you're going, but you might want to consider writing more stories or reworking it as a novel. And I was just like, rework it as a novel. These people are insane. I'll never amount to anything. I'm going to grad school. Um, because I, I just had a very hard time growing up in Canada and not really, I mean, there are obviously novelists in Canada. I had a hard time 
consider seeing myself Mm -hmm. as a professional writer. So I went to grad school to be a professor of film history and theory. Mm -hmm. And that's what brought me to Los Angeles. A narratologist. I did. I studied a lot of narratology. It just means storytelling. So whether it's like history that's told as a story with like cause and effect chains Mm -hmm. and like, um, or stories that we know, poems that tell stories or songs, anything that's sort of like is, uh, is telling you a narrative versus like giving you a list of facts mm-hmm. or like coming at you with different information about what has happened. Um, is the study about the function? Is it about the history? Is it about the form? Like what? Wh- take this apart for me. Kind of all of it. I mean, from the from the film side, because mm-hmm. I was mostly did film history and theory. It's a lot of structuralism, which I was in grad school in the 90s, and that was sort of post-structuralism was happening. So I was considered very kind of old-fashioned in, like, wanting to understand, like, how genres worked out conflicts Mm and um, sort of understanding the deep structures of things versus using psychoanalysis to understand Mm -hmm. things. Um, Even in feminism and feminist theory, when I was studying it, I was more interested in, like, how women were positioned in the shot, you know, versus like yeah. something having to do with Freud. So uh, when I took my uh, comprehensive exams for my PhD, my professors were like, you are literally the last person that we will be able to ask these questions to. <laughs> because the next awesome. wave yeah. of people. The last of the narratologists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is not interested no. in this shit. That's really neat. Um, and, and look, it's, it ties into this idea of modes of storytelling, right? And this is the thing that I've been really interested to see you guys sort of excel at over the years, and then suddenly with Runaways, take sort of a different storytelling form, right? It's, it's, you became very comfortable, it seems to me, in this turning over plot very quickly, like what is basically a soap opera mm-hmm. genre. Yep. Um, Runaways doesn't do that. And that's that's the conversation I'm really curious. Well, it does. I mean, it is a serial. I mean, there, it does it live with is. a foot very firmly in the kind of storytelling that we enjoy and we like. Um, and there is, as you said, a lot of story and a lot of yeah. you know, these sort of uh, conflicts and intergenerational conflicts and marital conflicts and all of that. So it, it did feel like... It was, a, it was a way for us to move into this sort of genre of storytelling, but in a way we felt very comfortable oh, with interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, and just, and just to wrap this up... Um, I don't mean to debunk does, your whole theory. No, not at all. This is what I love to hear. Um, does having this background, have st- having studied storytelling, does that inform these first scripts that you start to do, or do you, is it just internalized and you just kind no, of... No, I think it? for sure it did. I mean, the first thing it did was it just gave me a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. So when I showed up in town seeking my first internship, um, I had taught university classes and I felt like just I presented papers I published papers I just felt really comfortable talking about text and watching something and giving my opinion on a script I was just like yeah I'll tell you what I think um and just having watched a movie every day for eight years you know just makes you feel like you know stuff absolutely so um so I felt really comfortable um in my in my first opportunity and um, and sharing my thoughts and I think that that was appreciated and encouraged and rewarded uh, and then just writing kind of slowly snuck back in mm-hmm. where it's like you're doing development and you're giving notes and then it was really on the first Charlie's Angels movie that um, literally it did not have an ending like people joke about something not having a third act but like it didn't have a third act it ended on page 86 and we didn't know what was going to happen but we only had Cameron Diaz for a certain period of time so we had to start shooting and we're like well it's an 88 day schedule <laughs> hopefully we'll figure it out by you know day 76 and we'll be able to finish and we had many super talented writers come through um, and it just wasn't really gelling with like what the tone was. And McGee would pitch an idea, and I would write it down, and then the girls would read it, and they would go like, "This is kind of funny. Like maybe we should just do this." And then it was like, "All right, well, let's just start like typing scenes." And then we kind of finished the whole movie that way. That's so funny. Um, and then after that, McGee and I started our company together. So then when we did the second movie. Um, 
I I did a draft, like a production draft, mm. when we were ready to start shooting, and I did all the production polishes on that. Mm. Then I did a draft of Superman. Oh, really? Do you guys want to talk about this? <laughs> it got it got a green light uh-huh. at which, Warner which, Brothers. Which version of Superman was this? McGee's version of Superman, oh, right. okay. which never got made. Yeah. That that was a an empowering slash frustrating experience, which was sort of happening at the same time that I was realizing I wanted to be a writer and mm. I needed to leave my job as an executive. Um, I think I encouraged that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then this opportunity arose. Right. Yeah, we had already we had met. I guess in between, if we if we yeah, the, if we, we track our lives s- based on Charlie's Angels movies, yes, which we all yeah. No, we just met on the second movie. Yeah, because we just met on a general. Like, I was just sent in mm-hmm. and go in and meet with, uh, you know, I was a, just a writer. And so uh, went in and met with Stephanie. And we kind of hit it off in the first meeting. And we started, and kind of out of those meetings, the OC was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and very early on, I was like, you're not really like any other executive I've worked with. I think you should write. And obviously, she was having the same, same thoughts. That's pretty great. I think it was a Baja Fresh on... Yeah, sunset and across <laughs> street from the arc light. It was Baja Fresh, where I was like, "You can leave and be a writer full time." You know, it's okay. and then Josh was very generous because uh, the studio and the network were open to me mm-hmm. writing, but they were like, "Well, where's your spec script?" And like, you know, there's a process for this. And Josh was just like, "The process is she's going to write the script. If it sucks, I'll rewrite it." And they wouldn't let me write one of the first twelve. I think, I think Chris McKay's yeah. the thirteenth or fourteenth yeah, episode. Yeah. All right. yeah. yeah. How do you guys work together, and how is that? Well, it's evolved? been an evolving process. Actually, yeah. Runaways is the first time we realized that we've really run a show together. Mm-hmm. Meaning, the OC was um, was always, I guess, because I had written the pilot scene as my show, and Stephanie. It was your show. You right, created well, the fine, show. All right, fine. <laughs> I was my show. I was there. I helped. Yeah, but okay. it was your show. <laughs> but it was like, but um, your voice is in it. But but Steph then you know but she had her other job at the time and so right. we weren't we were on it together with the pilot and then it was it was later on and then when Gossip Girl happened which we wrote together um, was also doing the show Chuck at the same time with a friend of mine from USC named Chris Fedak who, anyway Chris was was brand new he was sort of like uh, where I was when you know we'd done done the OC so that was a show that I was going to have to mm-hmm. spend more time on and so Stephanie really ran Gossip mm-hmm. Girl. Um, she was Gossip Girl, and uh, and so this was the first time that we were ever kind of like doing it together, and mm-hmm. we and we had, you know, in the ensuing years, we tried different things, and somebody would go off and do their own thing, and somebody would stay and keep keep an eye on the, the what is it, the ranch, the fort headquarters, I don't know, and metaphors are the failing me, the stable. There we go, back in the stable. Um, so this was like one where we kind of really wanted to, to do it together, and oh, kind of great. and kind of be in the process. Together all the way to the end, which also meant I had to be in the room. Yeah, <laughs> so Stephanie was going to be in the room. I had to be in the room. <laughs> I ended up getting more of the all night shifts when we went into production. I will say. But, yeah, but uh, somehow you kind of. I liked it. We're okay it with that. Yeah. I mean, when you're when you're the night person, it's like. You have less busy work because I sort sure. of, as the awake in the day person, yeah. was like returning all the emails and like. <laughs> we had a lot of extra night shifts that we have learned yeah. never to do again. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Josh did very generously take a lot of the night shoots. I'd like to hear about how you were running Gossip Girl. What was your What was your style? And again, how has it changed to you guys now collaborating more directly on Runaways? Um, well, I'd say one of the biggest things that's different is just doing a shorter order. Mm-hmm. Um, Gossip Girl was a weird experience because the, season one was the year of the strike. Uh, sure. So yeah, we had um, two new shows, both of which went down on the strike here. But um, but Gospel got to come back and do more episodes. Chuck had to wait all the way yeah. until season two mm-hmm. to come back. But they both did come back. They were the only two dramas that launched that right? in two thousand and seven that came back. That's right. Well, got past. Right. Made it past year two. It was us and Big Bang Theory were the three shows that <laughs> launched the year of the writer strike. Actually, because a lot of shows came wow. back in season two, and, and the audience was gone. gone. Right. Uh, luckily, Chuck was on NBC at the time, so there was no audience at that time. <laughs> so we were we were free to stay alive. And the CW was new and needed. To, yeah. they needed mm-hmm. shows. Um, but Gossip Girl was fun because it was it was a great room. It was a pretty decently sized room, and. Uh, we tried to have a lot of writers that were from New York um, mm-hmm. that kind of knew that world. And Josh Safran was someone that I met when I worked at Flower Films in development. Like, it would have been 10 years before Gossip Girl. Well, maybe not 10 years. Maybe 
five years, but like yeah. a long time ago. Um, and I loved his writing, and he had written pilots, um, but he'd never staffed on the show. So that was an interesting experience where he was a super talented writer, totally got the world of the show, got the voice, mm-hmm. um, but didn't know was just like what is going on where it comes to like people are writing beats on the board and like (laughs) so he had a learning curve um there um and then we just had a lot of really talented writers and uh because we were slowly making changes from the book i think sometimes Mm -hmm. people forget that that was even an adaptation but we made the the pilot mirrors the first book pretty closely in terms of the plot and then we barely use anything else from any Mm -hmm. of the other books um, but one of the things that we did was we sort of assigned, like, all right, you're writing the Jenny goes to the ball episode. And, you know, Jessica Queller, who wrote that episode, who actually pitched the idea for that episode, I was just kind of like, I don't know if, like, does that feel too soft or too mm. girly? And But, you know, Jessica's love for that concept just made me go, you know what? This is a part of the show, that that wish fulfillment of going to a masquerade ball and kissing the boy that you love, even if he thinks you're somebody else, is still <laughs> like, that wish fulfillment is in this show, so you write that. And then uh, K.J. Steinberg got the first big Chuck episode where we're like, okay, let's see if we can make this guy likable, you know, with his mean dad and and really dig into his story. And, like, that's your responsibility to try and, like, deliver this DNA to the show. So I think um, Josh Safran wrote the first uh, big Blair episode. Uh, He introduced the character of Dorota that was based on... His Dorota, <laughs> called Dorota. My Dorota, my Dorota. So I think we empowered people early mm-hmm. to take ownership of the show and to embrace what they were excited about. It was also a really literary room, so we talked mm-hmm. a lot about you know shapes from literature and Shakespeare and oh, End of Innocence. It was very funny because we had the truck writers room <laughs> on one floor and the gospel girl writers on the other floor, and the truck writer you would assume it was like slovenly and you know it's just like. Uh, even with the girls in the room, we just had like a very like dude. The energy. lunch order would and come, and so the lunch orders would come, and you know you'd, you'd there'd be one person walking in with just like sausage pizzas, <laughs> and somebody else coming in with like quinoa bowls, and it's very clear <laughs> which room the food is going to. The food well, culture yeah. of writers' room. This has become a, a running stuff. theory on yeah. this podcast about how rooms. Uh, mirror the, the show. Orders. Yeah. Oh, no, got mirror it. the actual show. Yeah. And it seems like that's true. <laughs> this is what mm-hmm. was going on here. Um, but we are, I would say, what we both enjoy doing is we love um, working with writers. So we're mm-hmm. not people who are like every word has yeah. to be ours. And when we're on set, if the actor wants to change something, yeah. we're not like, no, this is how it works. So when you, we find writers, um, and hopefully some of the OC people said this too. Uh, when we find writers that we really like and we feel like get the show, mm-hmm. we are happy to give them the ball and you know and bring them into the process. And we want it to be uh, where you want everybody. There's so much work, and there's yeah. so much work. You know, you want. There's no better feeling than when you read a script of your show and you're like, oh, I think this is better than the version I would have done, you know, in terms of how they're seeing the characters and they're not, they don't have that baggage that you might have thinking about them from their earliest pilot date, whatever it is. Um, so that is something that we, we really enjoy. Yeah, yeah and we've developed to, with like Ali Adler, yeah, Matt yeah. Miller, and from some, Chuck, and Lila Gerstein yeah. did Heart of, yeah, yeah. Fedak, Lila Gerstein like did shows, Heart yeah. of Dixie. Yeah. Amy Harris was yeah. on Gossip Girl before she did Carrie Diaries. Diaries. Yeah, so we, we love writers and we love to find people that, you know, we can trust. Yeah, I, I definitely recall these conversations and any writers who have worked for or with you guys have had their voices heard. You know, like they got to tell their mm-hmm. stories even in someone else's show. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not always what happens. Yeah, Lila talks about um, yeah. on the OC, uh, the summer's uh, embrace of uh, environmentalism was definitely something that you know she was pushing and advocating. No, and it can come from the actors too. I mean, we were joking on Runaways. Gert is obviously a you know a social justice warrior. She's called out by their, the cast members, and and Ariel who plays Ariel who plays Gert was like, um, can we talk about Gert's feminism? And I was like, 
yeah, we can, but I've got Stephanie. I'm pretty sure that, you know, and she was like, yeah, that's great for like third wave feminism, but we're on fourth wave feminism now. And we were like, great, like, yeah, tell, tell us. us. Let, let us make that part of this. Because like when the writers are invested, when the actors are invested, when everybody feels like they have skin in the game and it's reflected, everybody does their best work and, and the show just kind of sings. Absolutely. So what is, you know, when you're starting up a room and using Runaways as an example, but really any of these rooms, what is your expectation of your staff? What do you guys come in hoping for or wanting? That's a great question. I mean, breaking story, you know, the, the, the blank whiteboard. I mean, obviously you hope everybody can write the script and can write emotion and humor and get all the voices out of the gate, but that's hard. And that's our job. Our job mm-hmm. is to make sure that when the script goes to the set, mm-hmm. it feels reflective of the tone and the voices. And, and, you know, and so, that it's producible. And that it's producible. That's, that's also mm-hmm. part of our job. Part of our job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, that, and so sometimes there's writers who learn that over time. Some, you know, and everybody has a different skill set, what have you. But I think number one, it's about laying out the story of the season and breaking those stories. Because yeah. that is really the you know the spine of the of the season. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, and to just a kind of like Fedak calls it pushing story. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Pushing story. That's what he feels oh, like, right? Yeah, po- you would know that if you could get him on the podcast. A positivity, yeah. you know, even when like, because I think Josh and I are both, despite our foibles, fundamentally positive people. Where it's just like guys were using our imaginations here. Like <laughs> we're not going to run out of stories. We right. just have to like. Come up with some more stories. We might need to get some sleep and come yeah. back tomorrow. <laughs> well, um, that's, that's the other part of it is, you know, how do you as showrunners create a target for your room? How do you let them know the thing that you're mm-hmm. looking for? And when those conversations around story and breaking the season mm-hmm. or the episode are, are happening, how do you start to narrow it down? Well, I think, I mean, I when Lila Gerstein... Uh, had Heart of Dixie, she actually asked me, she was like, what like, what was in your head when you were like trying to get us to break stories? And I say, well, I would have certain ideas in mind. And they might be a big idea of like getting a couple together or, uh, you know, somebody's going to die. Or it might be a small idea of like, it would be a great moment if mm-hmm. such and such happened. Um, but once I had the idea, I was super open to how it was executed. And I was like, the analogy is, you know, this boat is going to Africa. And, like, it's a boat, and it's going across the ocean. But, like, if you guys want to go through the Panama Canal, like, that's up to you. I'm not going to micromanage, like, where you stop and who's driving the boat and how many people are on it. But, like, we have to get to that um, Destination, And I think if you are super clear about that in the room, even if it's kind of a crazy thing, people can understand, like, I don't know, she wants that to happen. So how do we make that work for her? How do we, like, tell, give her that piece that she wants, but still make it feel like it makes sense to us and, like, we like it and we have ownership of it? Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. And we have different styles, too. I mean, we're, you know, we have different approaches, mm-hmm. we have different, um, we obviously have a lot of stuff that over overlaps um, in terms of what we like and our sensibilities, but I think, you know, when Stephanie walks in the room, people are like, oh, we have to actually do the work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have different ways of hopefully getting things out Motivating of people. people. Motivating people. Um, <laughs> Because sometimes it's like... God, Josh brings in the meatball subs and yeah. I just sit there with my arms folded. Going like, let me tell you how we did this in grad school. No, but there's different ways to get people excited. Sometimes it's by laying out like a really clear vision of like, guys, we're taking the boat to Africa. And uh, and other times it's just, you know, it's getting people excited about the idea or, or enthusiastic about the idea. You know, there was just th- that idea of like... I remember in the Chuck writers room being like, guys, haven't you ever wanted to be James Bond? Mm-hmm. What if you got to be James Bond? Like, what are the things? You, so there's different ways to kind of um, get people invested and, and excited. Well, in a different room is going to respond to different totally. ways, too, yeah. right? On a different project. Meatball subs are required. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about sensibility for yeah. a second, then we'll start to wrap up. You know, you have two shows on the air. You have a bunch of things coming up. You kind of have a pilot or two every year, uh, whether or not the shows actually go, but often they do. Um, tell me about finding projects. 
you know, you well, guys must have stuff that gotten away. You must have stuff on your wish list. There's no dearth of ideas, as you said. But we're yeah, actually so old so that stuff. some of the stuff that's gotten away has come, come back. back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say, you know, in Dynasty is its own unique thing because that was one where we partnered with Sally early. Um, mm-hmm. Because we knew Runaways was going to be going, and we were kind of committed to that as our sort of the thing that we were going to run. But we were excited about Dynasty. We were excited about Sally, and that was really about how helpful can we be, you know, as mm-hmm. as as early in this process as we can, and trusting that she was somebody who was ready to run the show. So that's an idea where someone calls and says, "Hey, the rights to Dynasty are available. CW's interested. What do you guys think?" And it, you know, it's about where you are in your life and what happened. We were been in a deal for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and we were starting to feel like we'd been in deals for. For a while, we were at Warner Brothers for 10 years. We were at ABC Studios for like three years. Mm -hmm. And we were starting to feel like being at these deals now is very nice and we're we're very fortunate. But you're also very um, limited limited in what you can Mm -hmm. do. And a lot of the streaming cable places want to own their content. And so unless you have a Marvel or... Or you know some kind of IP right. that comes with the studio, it's very challenging. DC, if you're at Warner Brothers. DC, if you're at Warner Brothers. So it was at a moment where we were like, let's just go independent. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just bet on ourselves. Um, I think we were a little bit frustrated with the development process and with the network experience, and we were just looking for a different experience. We tried different things. I, for one, went a few years without any interest in writing another television show or wanting to do another show. That's the other thing, too, is you just get really tired. Like, <laughs> of course. Going and, from and the OC straight doing, into Gossip Girl yeah. was 10 years of yeah. running a show yeah. every day. And yeah. it's an overwhelming job. episodes. Yeah. So, like, that's a lot of product. <laughs> and you just kind of, like, I think we were both, like, do we even like writing anymore? Yeah. Like, maybe let's just produce other people's shows and yeah. share our wisdom of production but, and support. Oh, that's like get into the feature business. How hard can that be? And then that's a whole different level of uh, set of challenges. But uh, but that is, I mean, yeah. I want to just take that apart for yeah. a second. You can't hit that point, right? And But you are still in this business. And so to say, how do we shepherd projects? Or how do we boost the people that we believe in and have worked with or haven't worked with but that we want to yeah. see rise up? Mm-hmm. What do you guys see as your role... Uh, how do you work your role as either curators or producers? Well, uh, what's the responsibility there? First, the first responsibility is trying to reconcile an idea with a with the right writer. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes you start with someone sends you a book, and you go, "Oh, you know, would be perfect for this." So there's just that that sort of marriage, and, and sometimes the writer walks in with the idea fully formed. Um, it's different for every project. I think it's different for every writer. Some people require a lot of like, can you please be in the room with me while I break this story? Because I'm going to get lost in the, you know, and we're, we try to provide that because writing is a lonely business. We found each other. Yeah. Even when we didn't want to uh, write, or not that we didn't want to write things together, but even when we were right. writing things separately. separately, we would still come and knock on the other person's door and say, can you read this? You know, what are your thoughts? So to try to at least offer that to, to writers, I think there, there's somebody you can call, there's somebody you can bounce ideas off of that's not the network, it's not the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably function number one because there's like the development side of it and then when the show kicks into gear if the show gets ordered that's a whole other thing that that writer has probably never really had to think about before and it's always about just get get the show or get the show ordered then if your show gets ordered there's a whole infrastructure that has to come with that and we have long and deep relationships with filmmakers and crew and music supervisors and casting directors and editors and so we can staff up a show really quickly with really good people mm-hmm. that we have a shorthand with um, once that pilot gets ordered and that I think is also a valuable Absolutely. I feel like we're selling ourselves as a, <laughs> that's why you should come Bring up with us, yes but there's also something to I would imagine getting I mean in the way that you were when you started mm-hmm. working with Stephanie that you're a writer working with you guys is getting notes from other writers. Totally. And, and by the way, that's, that's been one of the pleasures of being at Marvel mm-hmm. Television is that Jeff Loeb is a writer yeah. and he's our boss. And so you get a different kind of note from somebody who's a writer that is helpful for us. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I forget where this question well, uh, was about sensibility. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and like... But what, then at a certain point, you yeah. have to be comfortable with, it's not our show. We've, right. been, we've empowered this person. We trust mm-hmm. this person. And then you have to let the that person run. You know what I mean? We don't ever want to feel like we're usurping their power mm-hmm. or right. we are undermining them. Um, we, When we've been in running our own shows, we've made mistakes. We've made decisions sure. that we, we would like to do over or what have you. And you have to give people the freedom to do that and let that, you know, 
You have to let them leave the nest. Mm. Yep. Leave, the sta- I, leave the stable. Thank you. Yeah. Three times we yeah, did that. Yeah, we did that three times. And I think with Runaways for us, we yeah. were like, we just want to do something for us. That we want to be mm-hmm. all the way in, mm-hmm. 100%, every detail of the show, from the beginning to the very end. Yeah, and I think and people... Not, and not outsource that to anybody mm-hmm. else. Yeah, might have been a little nervous that there's two of us, so like... If I sign off on something, but Josh hasn't seen it, is Josh gonna like? I'm always gonna be mad that it's different than what he thought, or like, sort of how do they negotiate the like two-headed beast? And I think people were like pretty amazed that like 99.9 percent of the time we thought exactly the same thing, and then the odd time where we didn't, it was just like (laughs) it was just like. Well, I, you know, I don't, they showed me two things and I, they showed me a blue one and a green one and I picked the green one, but I really don't care if you like the blue <laughs> right. one, it's yeah. fine. Yeah, and there's stuff that, yeah, it's like, are you passionate about it? If, if there yeah. is a place where we don't see the eye, which is rare, um, yeah, then it's the like, who's, more, who's the most passionate? Mm-hmm. I think that's the healthiest way to do that. Yeah, and there's things that like Stephanie is so much better at me than that I'm not like, when costume design is coming in or production mm-hmm. design or she's just like a great brain for that stuff, I'm happy to weigh in and, and but I know like, that is a place where I can. I know Stephanie's gonna. You know. That's great. Yeah. I mean, and I don't edit Josh's Dale York's dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> or my uh, my needle drop. Yes. Yeah. 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 There you so, go. Yeah, we'll, for, um, for Dale York. So. <laughs> Dale York's it's it's very specific yeah. and limited. Yeah. Um, Fish bootlegs only. How does oh, dear God. how does Runaways represent the thing that is just yours? Like, is this the the apotheosis of a fake, fake empire show? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And again, it's not just ours because it's Bryant's right, of course. and it's Marvel's and it's all the people right. that we worked with. But I do feel like of everything we've worked on, it feels like um, it, it kind of adds up to this. Mm-hmm. You know, like everything we've learned in multiple genres and just mm-hmm. storytelling, it kind of adds up to this. And uh, at least for me, it was a show that I really needed. You know, like I needed something that I could love and just throw myself into 100%. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I think you probably felt the same way, and that we yeah. got to do it together. Um, so, no, and that it sort of the, to take us back to where we started. That it does right back have where we started from. Yes, it has a lot of um, the sort of the OC vibes in it. It's got it's bimodal. You know, you're telling the story of parents and kids, how they relate to each other. Um, stories of marriages, stories of conflicts between these couples. You know, all of the teen angst drama. The show's set in L.A., which we just love being able to shoot here and being able to write to the places that we know. Um, And it it gives an opportunity to do something that's just very lived in and very loved, you know, between the love of the um, Brian's and Adrian's original story and going back to the pages of the comic to Mm -hmm. look at how... Christina Strain is like colored Carolina's lights and like really just doing a deep dive on like what is this thing and how can we like cherish it and bring it to life and then to be able to do that where we live telling you know what to us is basically a family drama and then learning how to incorporate this other Marvel a dinosaur yes (laughs) never worked with an animatronic puppet before or no when we're sitting in the editing room and we're laughing at the characters or we're starting to riff on side characters and like you just start to feel that level of granularity or that that you're really connected to everybody in the world in a way that it does just feel very loved you know Steph was saying and and it comes across on the screen for sure Uh, so congrats you guys Um, let's just wrap up by asking you what you are watching on television these days what's getting you excited or inspired what are you talking about with each other with your families well, with my families, there's a lot of, of Vampirina Ballerina. Sure. <laughs> and Daniel, uh, what season are they and on? Daniel Tiger. Season one. It's a new show. And uh, uh, what are we watching? Well, Steph, what's, wa- what's Steph watches a lot of about? Steph watches a lot of true crime and documentaries. Yes. Do you? What do you my, want? Um, That's the one place where our, our sensibilities do not diverge. <laughs> yeah. These are Netflix cues. Yeah. yeah. No, my my YouTube homepage is actually really <laughs> ugly. Like it's only I, I sent a screenshot of it. Yeah, it's only like <laughs> serial killers and. I think there was a documentary about Patrick Swayze. Everything else was like that's horrible. Awesome. That's awesome. Around, yeah. <laughs> um, Mind Hunter. How good is that? So good. 
Um, and then now it's not called Mindhunter. What's it called? The Unabomber uh, oh, yeah, yeah. thing that was, was it also has the right? word mind in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I thought was super good, and I was like, how can they make this interesting because we know what happened? But it turns out we didn't know what happened. Um, um, every Sunday morning, I watch Frontline. <laughs> it's like my... Well, you like, you're drawn to the dark stuff. I am. Um, um, what else are you watching? Certainly the new season of Stranger Things. Was yeah, we devoured consumed quickly. that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Alias Grace I watched. I did not watch that. Great. Big Mouth, BoJack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm excited to watch previous Future- season was better than this season anyway, in my opinion I'm very excited to watch uh, Future Man not just as a Hulu plug but someone described it as Last Starfighter meets uh, Back to the Future with dick jokes and I'm like oh my god I'm so into that <laughs> I watch that too I am an unabashed unapologetic this is us viewer and I, and I you don't have to apologize I do to Stephanie I it's beloved yeah it is also we have the same composer yeah oh is that right yeah he's got he's created two completely different sounds for for both shows, but both very effective. Nice. These are good answers. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Good luck with uh, both the shows, all the upcoming things. Uh, you guys are killing it. Thank you. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 